0: Welcome to Warm Regards, conversations from the front lines of climate change. I'm Jacqueline Gill, a paleoecologist at the University of Maine. Joining me this week from Nebraska is Ramesh Langani, an associate professor of biology at Doan University. Ramesh, you said it was going to be hot, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's it's definitely gotten hot. How, how are things in Nebraska? Are they still hot or are they hotter?
1: Things are still hot and... Uh getting hotter we just we had a big rainstorm the other day so that was a little better but then uh, water evaporates and it becomes humid so it's still yeah. hot and uncomfortable
0: yeah it's it's been terrible because we've been having these uh, like afternoon rain showers that don't don't make anything better it just right. makes
1: it worse yeah absolutely uh, yeah absolutely um, yeah so it's it's a little bit sticky here but there's still time to get out in the in the garden and uh,
0: yes, try so to yeah yeah use- i I've had these bags of mulch that are just sitting on my lawn that are making... I just keep rotating them because it's been too hot to mulch and I have to move the bags so they don't kill the lawn. Uh, That sounds like a super first-world problem. Um, I mean, I guess in general, heat waves like this just have a way of bringing the reality of climate change smack up against our vulnerabilities. Like here in New England, we don't really do air conditioning as a general rule for most of our houses. They were built a few hundred years ago. Um, The heat just really brings to the forefront the weaknesses in our infrastructure, and our social safety nets. Um, And Ramesh, you sent me this study, I guess last Thursday, the World Bank issued a new study that highlights the impacts of rising temperatures and and rainfall changes on nearly a billion of the world's population. Um, So there was this New York Times article that had some really great maps that highlighted this study and we'll we'll post that on our show notes. Um, But Ramesh, you want to kind of give us the breakdown on the basic finding?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, the the basic finding is, you know, it's getting hot, and uh, that heat, the climate change is going to have a social a social impact. And um, you know, one of the big one of the big points of the New York Times article was that sort of unchecked climate change. I'm quoting here: unchecked climate change um, it's going to amplify hardships associated with poverty. And so they had some really interesting maps of um, India. They also had some really interesting uh, temperature trends from a number of South Asian countries, including Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, Bangladesh, um, Nepal. Um, and the trend lines are going up, as as is unfortunately to be expected. Um, but what was really interesting about, uh, they had maps of India. And of course, um, I have an, a lot of families still there. So I was immediately drawn to those maps. And what was really interesting to me was they sort of use these climate scenarios that I believe are oftentimes integrated into things like the IPCC reports. So that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, Put out these reports every few years. Um, and so they have these scenarios. And so this, this map of India showed that um, this decrease in standards of living um, in India, and it's sort of geographically, it's it's not geographically the same. So certain parts of the country are more susceptible to climate change, induced changes in standards of living whereas other parts are less susceptible to those Um, and so that was a really really interesting map to look at and what was really interesting to me was I have family in Mumbai and according to these maps Mumbai is not really that affected by these changes in living standards Um, but the interior of the country is and so my guess now I'm I'm not Uh, professional at this, but my guess is that may cause a lot of people from the interior of the country to put even more pressure on coastal cities um, and their infrastructure as, as those individuals from the interior of India might be moving out to less climate impacted areas. So it's this really interesting idea that although Mumbai, according to these scenarios, might not be as impacted by uh, climate change and by changing changes in living standards, other parts are, and therefore it triggered a bit of a domino effect.
0: Yeah, it kind of gets at this idea of climate refugees, right? I mean, even if you live in a place where you think you might be pretty well buffered, uh, that place is going to become super attractive for all the people who are living in, in the places that are are feeling those impacts the hardest and the fastest.
1: Right. And, and Mumbai and a lot of the major cities in India are already... Super crowded, as I can attest to when I've gone there to visit my family. So, you know, it's just pressure on infrastructure, it's pressure on government, it's pressure on food systems. Um, all of those things sort of come to a head when, if you have this influx of uh, individuals sort of running from climate change.
0: Yeah, and what's amazing to me is, you know, reading some of the numbers here some of these are already the hottest, some of the hottest places on the planet, and they're already getting even hotter. So it looks like in parts of Western Afghanistan and <clears throat> Southwestern Pakistan, you're already seeing annual average temperatures rising one to three degrees Celsius, which is sort of what the global average is predicted to be in the next, you know, 50 years or so. And so it's almost like they're there are, it's already there, right? This reality is already there for a lot of these communities. And And they're not always necessarily the most geopolitically stable or affluent. Um, Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that was the overarching overarching message of the article is that these climate change trends might be similar in direction, but are not going to be even across the board. And so we really have to think about the communities individually that are impacted by climate change and how those communities interact.
0: Yeah, so even though we talk about global climate change and certainly it's affecting everyone, it's not affecting everyone everywhere equally.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Well, it's really hot here in Maine. And I personally live in the North because I am a delicate Ice Age flower and I do not do well when it's apparently hot enough to bake cookies on your dashboard. And it's so humid that my hair curls in ways that... It somehow never would after hours of torture with foam rollers and curling irons and enough hairspray to impress Van Halen. It's like flashbacks to, you know, preparing for church when I was a little kid. Um, but Maine is a place where historically people have come to escape that summer heat. And the elite of Boston and New York used to flee here in the summertime to take up residence in our coastlines. In fact, a lot of people still do this. We're vacation land. It's pretty much what it says on the tin. A large population, uh, actually, of, a large portion of Maine's population, actually lives in Florida in winter and then comes here to enjoy our cooler, milder summers. We actually call these people snowbirds. And for both these seasonal residents and our many, many visitors that we get every year, it's really all about our waterways, our lakes, our rivers, and especially our coastlines. And actually, I should probably back up for a second. Because, first of all, the European colonists and their tourist descendants weren't actually the first inhabitants of this place, not by a long shot. And secondly, throughout the history of this podcast, I keep mentioning that I live in Maine, but that's actually only one very recent name for the place that I live. In fact, the University of Maine's campus, where I'm recording right now, is located on Marsh Island, which is part of the Penobscot Nation territory and part of the Wabanaki Confederacy. There's archaeological evidence that something like 5,000 years ago here in Maine, the Native people shifted from an inland lifestyle to more of a coastal use of resources. And that incidentally happened also during a period when the Gulf of Maine got really warm, just like it is today. And of course, Euro-American archaeologists first assumed that these early inhabitants were also seasonal residents, but later work on the shell middens on the coasts disproved this theory. There's actually clear evidence that these coastal communities were inhabited year round. So even in the wintertime, people were here using these resources. Now, archaeologists don't actually know exactly what prompted these prehistoric shifts from inland to coastal cultures. And the Penobscot people tell their own stories about their history And of course, they also remind us that they are still here, a very resilient, vibrant culture with a very big stake in what's happening today to their native lands and livelihoods. So you can't really divorce these uh, two issues as we talked about in our, our last episode, the idea of climate science from climate justice. So today's guest knows just how important these bridges between scientists, policymakers, advocates, and indigenous peoples are, because she's actually helping to build those bridges. Melissa Watkinson is a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation of Oklahoma, and a social scientist at the University of Washington, working with coastal tribal communities who are impacted by changing environments. Melissa, we're so happy to have you on the show. Welcome. Hi,
2: good afternoon. I'm happy to be here.
0: So... On your Twitter bio, you describe yourself as an indigenous scholar of inclusive ocean conservation.
2: So, what does that mean to you? Uh, I think the rest of that Twitter bio, uh, where it says intersectionality matters, probably is another portion of that. Where really, as an I'm an, as an indigenous person, I'm a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation, as you had mentioned, uh, and I actually grew up in western Washington area where my dad and his family are enrolled with the Upper Skagit tribe. And so I consider the Salish Sea my home uh, and then, and grew up with the cultural and familial uh, aspects of the Coast Salish community here in Washington State. Uh, and I have a lot of uh, respect and gratitude to the people that I get to um, work with now and who have taught me uh, throughout my life about the value and importance of having relationships with the different um, animals and people in our community. And I think, I believe that it's really necessary to be inclusive of uh, the many folks who have not only a stake, but uh, cultural, social, and economic ties to uh, the many different natural resources and and um, particularly in the marine environments um, and and so that really drives a lot of my work is to ensure that the work on conserving our oceans is as inc- inclusive as possible
1: so Melissa, you've obviously you're a, an active member of the Native American community. um you've worked closely with them. Um, have you found that there are In in describing your work, have you found that there are more or less effective ways to communicate climate change and ocean resources and ocean conservation um, to those different communities? Uh, You know, does your approach change um, among communities?
2: Uh, I think that's a really good and important question. Uh, I guess just to go back a little bit, I do work primarily within Native and tribal communities, though... I also um, work as a social scientist within a program called Washington Sea Grant out of the University of Washington, where it's all acad- academia, I guess, maybe at least 80% of the time. And so my, my typical interactions are with uh, non-native uh, scientists from different disciplines. And so uh, working and talking about climate change or ocean acidification, specifically, looks rather different in these spaces than when working in community. Uh, now, I do think that working within, across different communities, uh, tribal and non-tribal communities, the conversations about climate change and ocean acidification are, can be vastly different. Uh, and I think that uh, that's primarily because of um, not necessarily thinking about how to communicate the technicality of what's happening to the earth or to our waters, but thinking about the values uh, that lie behind those, uh, the potential and and observed impacts of that climate change. So when working within native communities and tribes in particular uh, in Washington state where ocean acidification is a a pretty big uh, challenge, currently, and uh, we've already begun to see the impacts here. Um, and much, much of my work is right now is looking at the t- trying to at least document the social co- and cultural impacts of ocean acidification. It's really thinking about, uh, you know, and in those conversations with uh, Native folks in particular who have such close relationships with marine species, like uh, clams and crab and salmon uh those are such a valued part of the community and to think about how how the loss of or the impacts of those species would have as a result of climate change and ocean acidification is really what uh that converse, those conversations would be around to i think to help us understand exactly why ocean acidification
0: might be so important to to coastal communities, um, maybe we could talk a little bit about exactly what it means and from a scientific perspective and what its impacts are, because I bet a lot of our listeners have heard this term ocean acidification um, and maybe have some vague sense of what it is, but maybe don't quite understand exactly why it's so impactful.
2: Sure. Uh, and I guess some caveats here. Uh, is I am a social scientist and I think that one of my biggest duties as a social scientist is to absorb and learn uh, how other uh, scientists uh, communicate, you know, listen and absorb how they communicate their work and then translate that to communities and and sometimes into policy. Uh, So, so you're kind of the perfect person to,
0: to, I think, to, to give us like a really good cogent explanation of what this is. Maybe that's not like overly, you know, It's it's like a, yeah, it's like a really like, just like an average, like an average person's understanding. Sure.
2: Yeah. So uh, as we know, the atmosphere uh, absorbs a lot of the carbon that human activities release each year. And about a quarter of that is actually absorbed within our oceans. And as, as a result of that carbon being within our oceans, it has an impact on pH levels and lowering any a tiny bit of lowering of that pH level can really acidify the oceans just a little bit more. And that that even those tiny changes can have a huge impact on the ability of seafoods and marine species and particularly shellfish to uh, form and, and live healthy and thrive in the oceans. For example, clams and crab are being impacted are impacted by ocean acidification in a way that they're not really able to create their shells and form hard shells. So they're, uh, particularly when they're larva and and baby animals, they're not really able to to grow into a healthy adult. Uh, And that has an impact on the health, the quality and the abundance of marine species and seafoods in our ocean.
1: And then obviously that's going to trickle up to anybody who is using the ocean as a resource to harvest those clams and crabs. Um, Those population numbers, if they are in flux or if they are in decline because of that acidification, that's, that's going to directly impact those individuals that rely on that.
2: Absolutely. Yes. And Washington state also is a pretty uh, heavy aquaculture industry. And so both tribal and non-tribal communities rely heavily on the health and abundance of our seafoods and our shellfish uh, in fact some some of the impacts that are already being experiencing uh, in the commercial shellfish industries is the um, on oysters and there some companies are needing to have their larvae uh, grow healthy in oceans outside of Hawaii and then they can grow to adulthood in Washington state waters, but because of that acidity in our, ocean, in our oceans that they're not able to develop at that young age. Uh, and then of course, within uh, the tribal and native communities, uh, as I mentioned before, the social, cultural and economic value and relationship that native folks traditionally have uh, and currently have uh, is really um, relies heavily on the health of our seafoods.
1: Is, is there one resource, clams or crabs, that is being more impacted? Or is, do the native communities rely more heavily on one resource versus the other?
2: Uh, well, I think it's important to think about tribes and native communities as um, not homogenous. And as individual, because uh, we have tribe tribes have their tribal governments, and they have sovereignty and as native peoples also have individual sovereignty. And so thinking about native communities as a whole, um, sometimes can cause it to be a little bit challenging when thinking about how to manage a particular species or habitat. Uh, so Overall, in Washington at least, there are many. There are some species that are definitely shared across the different communities, um, and that's going to be clams. And there are many different uh, species that, and types of clams, and crab, Dungeness crab specifically, is um, you know uh, within and across many of our o- ocean waters, uh, and then and then not so. Uh, well-known or understood yet is the impact on salmon that ocean acidification has. We have a, uh, we have a lot of knowledge on how other changes in the environment are impacting salmon, uh, but many of the communities, if not most of the communities in Washington state rely heavily on the health of salmon species as well. Uh, but to say one particular species is a little bit challenging because that's gonna vary uh, depending on where uh, the tribe is currently located um because tribes are place based and in Washington state with uh the context of treaties and reservations uh that that might vary quite a bit uh geographically
0: yeah, this makes me think that this is such a, a an important but really complicated and challenging activity to you know to engage in we you know you you have these multiple as you say place based tribal communities. With their own governance structure and sovereignty. And then you have, you know, scientists that may be coming from all over the world to study these places and their ecosystems and the climate and its impacts. And then, of course, you have, you know, county and state and federal agencies that may or may not be actually doing anything with this information or communicating it or not communicating it. I and mean, there's just so many layers of, um, just d- different kinds of bureaucracy, I guess, at different scales that may or may not overlap and weren't necessarily designed to talk to each other. So um, what, I, is, that, is that your kind of experience on the ground or are you kind of local enough that you can kind of ignore a lot of that, those sort of extra layers of complication? Or it, it just sounds like oh what God. you do is
2: really hard. <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, I, I don't think you can really describe the complexity of it really. Because uh, that's it's really that everywhere. Uh, and I think... F- I have a personal passion and stake, I think, for working on these issues because I grew up in Washington State with uh, my family. Having really a, a lot of the ways that our family and our community convenes is over sharing foods and uh, going crabbing and and having meals with salmon, and um, so these marine foods have always been part of my my. The importance of my health and my family's health and community's health, Uh, so that drives me. And uh, I think having that opportunity then to, for other folks to be working on these issues, you know, I don't, I, I think that that's um, because of the complexities that are within that. You know, I think it's really important work. And and I also think that a lot of that, much of that work, actually should be held within the tribal communities, and. As many, uh, I think it's important to have for the opportunities for Native folks to be leading that work uh, and for the tribes to be making the decisions on behalf of their communities on how that work is done. Uh, and then, you know, all these other obligations within the federal government that and different NGOs working to, to work, trying to work with in Native and Indigenous communities. Um, there's a lot of uh, important ethical uh, and moral responsibilities that need to be taken when considering working with tribes, particularly on climate change issues and and thinking about traditional knowledge. Yeah, so that one of my questions for you
0: actually was. Um, I, you know, what are the barriers to approaching this work? Like, let's say I'm a, I'm a marine scientist and I'm working on the ground in this area and I'd like to get more involved and and more connected with communities. Um, you know, how, how, how could a scientist like me get more involved uh, with the work that you do? Um, and why might it be, you know, what might be the barriers or opportunities that, that exist?
2: Hmm. Certainly. Yeah. Well, I, uh, not to veer, I'll come back, but just wanted to also acknowledge and say thank you for uh, acknowledging the Penobscot nation where you're at and um, the indigenous peoples of Maine. uh, And wanted to have an opportunity to do the same here. I'm currently on the traditional territories of the Duwamish peoples in Seattle, which is the Duwamish tribe is not a federally recognized tribe. Um, But I say that because I think that to to begin working within communities, you have to really acknowledge uh, the historical and current context of the tribe that you intend to be working with, uh, and then from there, I think it's really about uh, building a trust, building trust, and then building relationships within the within the community uh, and the tribal leaders, and recognizing the uh, the sovereignty. That go along goes along with uh, being a recognized tribal government. Uh, Those are kind of the initial things that I think are are step one in going to do any of this work. Um, The barriers, to me, I think are tend to be working with different within different cultures and having to recognize that there um, is a. Different needs to be a different culture shift in working with tribes, uh, recognizing that there are different layers of governance, and uh, not which include even within academia. Uh, I f- I am in an interesting space to be an indigenous scholar who works within academia. Who uh, my my job is to be working with tribes and native peoples uh, because I recognize that. Within academia, there are all these other barriers, like getting human subjects reviews and funding, and as simple as you know, how do you how do you pay the people that you're working with um, the incentive to actually and for their time that they're providing you? Those are all barriers with that the institution itself creates, uh, as examples. And then there's uh, the barriers, I think, for a lot of scientists who want to be working with tribes which is that recognition to you really have to have the capacity and resources and commitment to develop those relationships and and that can take a long time and i think recognizing the time that thing that relationships could take um over years you know is not the typical uh Time frame that academia runs off of where you have to, you know, do your, collect your data, do your assessments, publish a paper within a certain short amount of time, uh, that really can limit the opportunity to be working within tribal nations that, you know, things, relationships take a lot of time.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point. And I'm glad you brought that up. I mean, it's certainly on my mind as a pre-tenure faculty, right, that the, 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 just building a, a scientific collaboration can take years, and you know I'm I'm trained in how to do science, but I'm I'm not necessarily trained in how to you know approach and and make you know build collaborations and build trust with community stakeholders, right? Especially ones that are outside of you know my own culture, and um, and I imagine I mean, do you ever? I mean, like I'm thinking about like an NSF grant, which may have a lifespan of three years, and there's this expectation that you have a broader impacts section where you're somehow communicating or disseminating that information um, or working with a community stakeholder or something along those lines, like something beyond the scientific community. And you know, a, a, I think there, there are probably a lot of well-meaning scientists who think like, "Oh, I'm going to work with indigenous peoples," and they kind of want to parachute in and just and just have that sort of pre-made relationship and say hey I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some data or I'm gonna ask you for your indigenous knowledge I mean do you ever run into scientists who are kind of well-meaning but just sort of stumble uh in a not very respectful way into those spaces
2: Mm, yeah yeah I think that happens uh quite a bit uh in ways that the well-meaning part I think is is key there because I think a lot of people are really well meaning and and they just don't really have the knowledge or resources on how to go about it Um, but oftentimes sure we'll have folks who uh, will kind of maybe let's say piggyback off of a relationship that you've built um, as a scientist be like well I know you and you know so and so so I should know so and so and that'll be it Um, but that's not how relationships typically work, and particularly relationships where there's a lot at stake. Uh, so I think that 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 kind of breaking down that knowledge barrier, I think, is um, really important. And I also think it's necessary to remember or be mindful that Indigenous ways of knowing and Indigenous science is and should be a recognized and valid science, uh, and and tribes. In particular, you know, I I would uh, have many elders and many tribal leaders I've heard say don't refer to us as stakeholders because we are not stakeholders, we are partners. And I think that recognizing that tribes and tribal communities are partners uh, is uh, definitely going to be necessary for thinking about, you know, how a scientist would approach um, working with tribes Uh, in a scientific way. So those two things, recognizing indigenous ways of knowing as a science and then recognizing that work, working within a tribe as uh, partners in that process.
1: So so Melissa, you highlighted the importance, and I completely agree, the importance of sort of building trust and building relationships and recognizing partnerships. And um, also in your work, you've, you've mentioned this idea of integrating social indicators, which again, maybe I'm sort of not understanding that term, but, you know, what does social indicators mean to you? And how, how do you think, you know, how are those social indicators being used in either planning for climate change or either building these relationships so that it's a win-win for everybody involved?
2: Sure. Uh, so if you can imagine yourself going to the doctor, right? And they take your temperature, and that temperature will indicate to the doctor whether or not you're healthy. Just as social indicators can do that for social scientists, essentially, we can take an uh, an indicator. Let's say, uh, let's say the, for simplicity, let's say the square miles of public lands within a particular community. And that indicator, uh, as a measure, will show um, how much access to public lands that a community has, and that's as a social, as a social health within a social health within a community, uh, could be a social indicator for how healthy that community is. Uh, I do want to highlight some important work that's being done within. Uh, Tribal communities, in particular, on social indicators, and that's um, some work that Larry Campbell and Janine Donatutu are doing uh, from the Swinomish Tribe here in Washington State. And they're they've created what they what they term the Indigenous Health Indicators, that speak specifically to identifying the indicators for the Swinomish Tribe. Uh, And they're related to climate change. And so thinking about these particular aspects that the community have identified as what makes that community healthy, and given these aspects of climate change that could be impacting their community, how is that going to impact the health? And by measuring, let's say, uh, pre-set of indicators to post-set of indicators, uh, post some kind of um, impact that from caused by climate change, you know how then we can kind of typically measure the way that climate change is having an impact, impact on communities. And, and then you can go back and think about that process more broadly. Uh, say for example, with marine spatial planning. and we have this suite of indicators that tell us here's what our community is currently looking at. If some kind of change were to happen, then, and we reassess those indicators, then we can have an idea then of how a particular change might be impacting uh, a community.
1: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Makes sense.
2: Yeah. So it
0: sounds like you've kind of tackled some of these questions from a number of different angles, um, using these really. What I think are really fascinating social science tools in your toolkit. Um,
2: what are you working on these days? I get to work on a project that's currently funded under the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, and it's titled the Ocean Acidification Vulnerability Study. And we're looking at the both the social, bio- and biological, and chemical uh, impacts of ocean acidification for the what they call we call the Olympic Coast region. Uh, and, and I get to work and partner with uh, Coastal Treaty Tribes of Washington State uh, on the social science uh, research end of this project uh, led by Dr. Melissa Poe. And we're working collaboratively to do an assessment on what the social and cultural impacts of ocean changes, including ocean acidification, have uh, for the Coastal Treaty Tribes here in Washington State. And then we have other folks uh, led by Dr. Jan Newton who are looking at the biological and chemical impacts of ocean acidification and hope, you know, the intention at the end that is to uh, integrate these multiple ways of knowing and multiple different sciences to... to really sh- strengthen policy and future funding opportunities and and then and then provide also share that the our results with the native communities who then can d- define and decide what their own adaptation practices will be. So it sounds a lot like throughout this project there's sort of a,
0: a feedback that I mean it, it really does sound like you're walking the walk of that what you said earlier which I loved um Rethink of tribes and tribal communities as partners and not stakeholders, um, and just this idea of this partnership where you're sort of listening and then reporting back and and also including it sort of every step in that process. So it sounds like a really good model for how to do this kind of work.
2: Yeah, I I agree. I I feel really proud to be working on this project, uh, both as a scholar and and particularly as an indigenous scholar. Um, I think that. The folks who are working on this project, including its partners, are um, really have really prepared themselves to be able to do this kind of work. I wanted to share a resource for those who were thinking about working with tribes, particularly thinking about uh, the social sciences and climate change projects. Uh, There's a great group called the Climate and Traditional Knowledges Working Group, who've put together a document called Guidelines for Considering Traditional Knowledges in Climate Change Initiatives. And they have two key principles of engagement. And I think they can be pretty simple, but people often misuse uh, these principles. Uh, But they are, one, cause no harm, and two, free, prior, and informed consent. And I think that uh, recognizing these as... Your starting place for how you engage within tribes uh, can really be beneficial in creating a strong model for um, collaborative partnerships
0: that, yeah that's great and we we can um, we can definitely put a link if there's any you know pdfs or, or or web resources that are associated with that we can we can link to them in our show notes
1: so melissa i have a maybe a little bit of a weird question. Have you had to do much? convincing of any of the partners that you work with of the effects of climate change? Or has that been a fairly easy, barrier-free conversation?
2: Yeah, so in Washington, uh, well, we, we, I think in Washington alone and in Seattle, we live in particular bubbles. Where after traveling to the East Coast and the South, I've recognized, you know, how open and um, people are and how much science and understanding is respected uh, within most communities that I've worked with, at least in Washington state. Uh, So trying to convince people about climate change and ocean acidification isn't something that I've particularly had to work to do. Uh and I also think that one of the reasons why uh within, especially with the communities that I work within, is that uh they a lot of the impacts of ocean acidification and sea level rise and increased flooding and drought and wildfires are all happening here in Washington State, and people recognize that this is these are not common trends that we've ever experienced before and uh particularly uh, with for tribes who have been in their play in place and where they are for since time immemorial uh they and their the traditional stories that um our ancestors have passed down is you know we recognize that actually things aren't the way that they always have been or the way that they should be. So it's uh, actually, I think tribes are actually leading a lot of that work for climate change and addressing climate change and saying, recognizing that there needs to be more capacity and resources to address it, both the mitigation and adaptation side of uh, climate change. Uh, and, And they're the ones that are probably doing more of the work to convince other people that Climate change is an issue.
0: So, what about the other end? Um, I'm wondering if you ever get pushback from, say, the scientific community, um, maybe who thinks that this kind of work that you're doing isn't isn't really important, or um, that you know social science isn't real science. I mean, I know some of my colleagues have expressed those opinions, and obviously, I, I disagree with them. But I can imagine that that could be a, a kind of another kind of barrier to the work that you do.
2: Sure, and I think it's something that uh i am constantly needing to address in my work uh the fact that social science sometimes isn't considered a valid science. And I think that uh you know it definitely happens, but I see more and more that people are, are acknowledging that people are what a lot of uh let's say policymakers and decision makers actually often care about. And so when When people are part of the equation when thinking about policy and this this era of time when a lot of scientists are really engaged in policy efforts uh social science is being more and more accepted in as a as a field that is a strong contributor to the scientific world and being able to inform fully uh when it comes to its impact- anything's impact on people the uh, knowledge that's, that is, you know, formed to be able to create important and informed policies. Um, I also get pushback on whether or not indigenous science or indigenous ways of knowing should be recognized as a valid form of science. Uh, And I have a really strong uh, colleague and mentor, Dr. Kyle Powis-White, who teaches out of Michigan, and I've heard him state a number of times that actually tribes and indigenous peoples have had many generations of peer review. So if, you know, knowledge, traditional knowledge isn't actually valid because, let's say, it hasn't gone through a formal academic peer review process, it actually has gone through much more rigorous processes within our tribal communities for thousands and thousands of years. and. I don't know who can really argue with that point.
0: Yeah, I I, I certainly am not going to try. <laughs> <laughs> I, think I think that's super compelling, right? Because, I mean, you think about it, like your average paper might get two or three reviewers, right, compared to, you know, hundreds or thousands of people over a really long period of time. Mm-hmm. And obviously the stuff that gets passed down is the stuff that, you know, really passes the test of time. So,
2: mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah, it seems like this is a good time to be doing this, too. Just the the, the rise of interdisciplinary perspectives and, you know, more and more we're leaving our single silos and we're leaving our towers and doing more engagement with, with, you know, people who have been traditionally unrepresented in our academic communities. And um, obviously we have a really long way to go, but it just, it, the kind of work that you do gives me a, a lot of hope that we're moving in the right direction.
2: Oh thanks. Yeah, that's um really meaningful to hear. I really appreciate that. Um and I and I really am, am I think empowered by the opportunities to really get to work with a broad range of different scientists who care just as much about climate change. And uh it's really wonderful to be able to once you find that center of of value or purpose for working on these issues, I think it really um, gives us all as a collective uh, scientific community an opportunity to advance our work together.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: Well, thank you for giving us a glimpse of, of
0: this work. And we really look forward to to hearing more about, about this in the future. Yeah. And thank you for coming on our show, too. Um, it was really great to to talk to you and learn more about what you're doing.
2: It was really great to talk to you both, too. And I thank you again for the opportunity for having this important discussion. Well we will
0: definitely uh share some links to Melissa's amazing work and the the efforts that she's a part of and some of the resources that she's mentioned um on our show notes so definitely if you're listening at home please do check those out. And uh I think that's a a, a nice like hopeful spot to wrap it up. It's always good to to kind of end things on a on mm-hmm. a positive note and uh we'll uh, we'll take a moment now as a sort of mental cool down to Transition into our our new ask us anything segment you have scientists and journalists here at warm regards on your you know at your disposal. you can ask us anything anything from our you know favorite science fiction novels to how ocean acidification works so you very rarely get a chance for free consultations uh with professionals so this is this is your opportunity.
1: Uh, last week we were talking about socks. Yeah, yes. So really <laughs> it's ask me anything. Literally anything, or ask us anything.
0: Any anything at all. Um and so today's today's question comes from Archie Bang. Uh, I don't know if that's his real name or not, on Twitter. Uh what impact will climate change have on snacking habits? And I really like this question because I've often said that climate change affects everything. And Food is also something that's very important to me, as I imagine it is to most people. Um, so, yeah, so I have some thoughts about this. But, um, Ramesh, what do you think? How How is climate change going to affect our snacking habits or yours in specifically or ours generally or the world's?
1: Uh, well, ironically, I was just scanning through some papers about how increased levels of CO2 might be altering sort of nutritional values of some staple cereals. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, and the jury's still out on exactly how all that works physiologically. And by no means am I a plant physiologist to know all the details. But I think they were looking at like rice. And I don't know if they've looked at corn, but you can imagine any of those staple cereals that go into. I mean, if Rice Krispie treats are becoming somehow less nutritious, that is not going to uh, bode well for for kids bake sales. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, you know, you can at least with a rice krispie treat, you can say, well, there's a, it's a grain. <laughs> right. It's a whole grain, uh, so it's a whole ignore, grain treat. <laughs> it, it's a whole grain. I ignore the marshmallow fluff. But if that's becoming less nutritious, then that's not necessarily a good thing. So, yeah. Um, yeah, that might be one way that it's affecting snacking by somehow making an unhealthier snack even unhealthier.
0: Uh, I, I don't know that I personally would would be compelled by the healthiness scale per se, although I guess I could stop lying to myself that it's, uh, you know, I'm eating rice. But um, yeah, so the reason that I think this is such a great question is because if you can pick a food, chances are there's going to be a climate change impact. And of course we talk about winners and losers, but some of the biggest climate change losers in the food world are happen. They happen to be some of the foods that we like the most. And again, I feel like we need like a little sound effect, like for caveat, like, you know, Jacqueline is speaking outside of her wheelhouse now. Um, (laughs) And there are people who do this for a living and I'm sorry to all of you. Um, but uh yeah, I mean you you read I, I kind of pay attention to this this literature in the news and you know, we hear about climate change is going to affect coffee, climate change is going to affect chocolate, uh, climate change is going to affect cheese. You know, so there's like all of these things that we really like. And you can if you googled how will climate change affect, you know, my favorite snack and then insert your favorite snack here, it's probably going to make a difference because um of The reality that everything that we eat, uh, for the most part, I think, comes from some form of, um, it comes from the environment, right? So, you know, there are obviously many, many layers between the environment and Doritos, but um, those original components do, you can eventually trace them back in theory, for the most part to To something, and there's
1: a corn chip. Yeah. There's a corn chip
0: somewhere. In there's there. a corn. There's a, there's a corn that goes into the chip, and there's a cheese that goes into that dust somewhere, and the, a, pep, a chili pepper maybe down the line. Um, right. the Um, yeah. And for me, actually, this hit home because you may have noticed that the price of vanilla, natural vanilla extract, is skyrocketing. And um, uh, like Penzi Spices recently said that they could, they were going to have to jack their prices again. Um, Penzi's is this really great spice. Uh, purveyor that's gotten a lot of attention during the resistance because they've been like openly political and progressive. And, um, but yeah, so apparently there were some typhoons that knocked out a bunch of the vanilla tree plantations. And these are, you know, plants that have to be hand pollinated. They're super sensitive. And uh, so if you can imagine, like, you know, obviously we can't attribute any one individual storm to climate change, but we we have a good sense that storms are likely to increase in their magnitude uh, of their severity or their frequency uh, with climate change based on some predictions. So you can imagine a scenario where, you know, knocking down all the vanilla trees in one of the few places where they can thrive uh, is already having an impact on on vanilla prices. And uh, yeah, so now they're looking into alternative sources for natural vanilla. Of course, we know that one of those is the anal gland, uh, of beavers. Um, this has actually been used historically as a sort of an artificial vanilla, although I don't know why it's artificial, like beaver butts are natural, but you know, so if you have to go from plant-based vanilla to beaver butt-based vanilla, that's probably going to affect some people's snacking habits. Um,
1: I did not know that. And I don't know if I can ever not know that now. Uh, All right. This
0: is Jacqueline's long con to tell everybody about beaver butts. (laughs) Beaver
1: butts. That's right. My my work here is
0: done. Warm regards can finish now. Um, Anyway, so, um, yeah. So, yeah, basically take home message is that – You know, we've we've learned throughout this episode that and previous episodes that food's really important. So um, I urge you to Google how your favorite snack is going to be affected by climate change, because chances are it probably will be. And I think that's a really great place to wrap up the show before I get even punchier and say something even sillier, um, which is not to diminish the seriousness and the importance of today's conversation, which was which I really enjoyed um, and of course, we would love to hear your thoughts, serious or punchy or anywhere in between. Please do email us at ourwarmregards at gmail.com. We can also take your comments and questions and suggestions for future episodes on Twitter at ourwarmregards. And please do subscribe to our podcast um, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. And uh, one of the best things you can do for us if you like the show. please do give us a rating give us some feedback Um, some comments are always appreciated so uh, with my thanks to Ramesh in Nebraska and Melissa in Washington and myself here on the other coast uh, Jacqueline and with thanks to our producers Jesse Ann and Eric Mack uh, this is warm regards stay cool out there be well be kind to each other and do good work thanks